0: That animal that we saw was intelligent enough to work out that the best way to get away from us was a couple of hundred meters away it was a hedge and he was going over it.
1: I just froze. <laughs> didn't want to move because I didn't want it coming towards me or anything. Something like that. You think, where the hell has that come from? Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Hi everyone, welcome to the show. We are on episode 95 of Big Cat Conversations. I'm pleased to say that one of our new listeners is joining us for this edition because he's got a wealth of experience tracking leopards and other wildlife in Africa. He also has a strong interest in Britain's own big cat situation. So coming up we're going to hear much about leopards in Africa but also some thoughts on how leopards and other large cats ply their trade here in the British landscape. So our guest is Mark Graves. Mark, welcome, how are you?
0: I'm good, thanks, Rick, and thank you for having me on the podcast.
1: It's a pleasure, Mark. I had the benefit of recently meeting you with some other big cat witnesses in deepest Herefordshire a couple of weeks ago, talking all through the subject. So I've got you down as a tracker, a trainer of trackers, a former farmer in South Africa, and a military man. So maybe you can untangle that briefly just to give a proper introduction to yourself to get us started, if that's okay. Sure.
0: I've actually had a a very interesting and very varied career path over my life. I was born in South Africa and grew up on a farm there until I was about seven years old, at which point moved to Herefordshire in in England. Grew up for the rest of my teenage years in Herefordshire on a farm there. Once I finished university in, in building surveying, strangely enough, completely separate to all of these, I ended up going into the military for a while, and I served as a troop leader, tank commander and troop leader for about six years in the military, serving in the first Gulf War uh, in Germany and in various places around the world. After I left the military, I decided to go back out to Africa. It was in my blood and definitely a calling for me. So I built myself a, a Land Rover as an overland vehicle, and I set off from Herefordshire and headed all the way down through Europe into Morocco, and through Western Africa, through Sahara, through Western Africa, through Congo, or Zaire as it was in those days, and then ended up in Uganda, where, for a number of reasons, I took a 14-year pause in my trip to South Africa. I Decided to continue my journey down to South Africa and reinvent myself. I'd always wanted to be a game ranger as a child. And I decided to do the Fugasa studies and become a field guide. I ended up becoming an advanced trails guide in Big Five. Then I ended up becoming an instructor and assessor for Fugasa, doing the training in the bush.
1: Well, just quickly, my experience on overhearing people do the Fagasa course, because some Fagasa exams were happening when I was at a leopard research camp once in South Africa, and I thought, wow, this is like doing a geography degree mixed with biology and wildlife in one and doing it from very much a practical boots-on-the-ground perspective. Very tough and very uh, multidisciplinary.
0: The Fagasa guiding system is second to none. I mean, there is nothing else within Africa that comes close to that level of qualification. I also bought a farm and set up a game breeding farm in the Lofalt, in the Hoodsprayt area, which concentrated on breeding of genetic variants for antelope. So primarily impala color morphs, so melanistic impala and other colour forms, and a lot of the Tragalaphus genus of antelope. So that's the, the bushbuck, Inyala, Kudu, Eland, all of the Tregolafini. So I was running the farm alongside, operating in the bush as an instructor and as a guide, as a professional guide, and also working as a freelance trails guide for Kruger National Park, doing the wilderness backpack trails was the highlight of my walking guiding career it's just an extraordinary privilege to be mandated and allowed to walk freely for three nights four days at a time in the kruger national park
1: gosh okay mark thank you very much for that and i guess different strands of that lifetime experience brought you different experiences with wildlife including leopards and from a farmer's perspective from a trail guide's perspective and from a tracker's perspective obviously we'll hear snippets of all of those as we go through the conversation now but say you were going to start off a website or a book on the essence of a leopard what are the key characteristics that absolutely define a leopard from your direct experience
0: one of the key things about learning to be a trails guide and teaching guides to become trails guides is the interaction with the big five. And leopards are one of the big five. Big five being named after the five most dangerous animals to hunt in Africa, being rhino, more specifically black rhino, elephant, buffalo, lion, and leopard, all for different reasons now obviously we're not uh, interested in hunting but they those animals are perceived to be the most dangerous in the bush and therefore we need to understand them and be prepared to deal with encounters with those animals on foot of all of those animals to be honest when i was teaching my students the animal that i am least nervous of is the leopard strangely enough although it has the biggest potential, well, it has a huge potential to cause us damage. They are solitary, and they are shy, and they avoid contact. The danger with them comes if you are hunting them. So if you are cornering them, or if you've wounded one and you're following it up, they become incredibly dangerous. But if you leave them alone, in fact, you're incredibly lucky if you get a sighting at all. They are very shy and very elusive, and many times we've been very close to them and barely even noticed they're there. I think the first time I ever did a walking trail as a student so, my first ever walk with my mentor and instructor I was just a participant as a student, just gaining experience. And we walked in the north of very, very far north of Kruger National Park, right up on the Limpopo River, so the other side of the Limpopo, is Zimbabwe a wild, beautiful area. It was very dry. We walked up over a ridge and down to a spring, a place called Mashashiti Spring, where I think we saw a couple of buffalo. Then we walked around the back of a small kopje, which is a small rocky mountain. And we took a break under a baobab tree. We'd been there a few seconds and, and I just looked up into this massive baobab, which was completely bare at that stage. It was just branches. Halfway up, We are talking a good 10 meters, so 30 feet off the ground on a branch. There was a face looking down at me. There was a leopard lying on the branch. We were literally right underneath it. It hadn't moved. It was there. And only when I made eye contact with it did it move. And it ran along the branch and just jumped. It just leapt away from us from that height onto the ground. And it came down with a huge thud and then just ran off into the bush. No one else had been aware of it. I had just looked up out of curiosity. I was really looking at the tree, and there was this leopard. We were absolutely underneath it. It would have probably stayed there, and we would have moved on and never been the wiser had uh, I not looked straight at it. And then we went round to have a look at see the tracks where this thing had landed into the ground, dropping 30 feet from the air, and where it had then run off how the tracks looked, because... It had gone at such speed that the stride pattern was huge. So it was just a fascinating example. But in a completely bare, barren landscape with almost not a leaf on the trees in the wintertime in South Africa, there was an animal sitting in a tree that nobody had noticed until we were stationary underneath it. And I'd looked straight at it. Otherwise, I don't think it would have moved. And it was just resting, was it? Just resting. It was comfortable. Baobabs are massive. They're actually a a plant rather than a tree. They don't have a cambium layer, but uh, very, very big boughs. And it was comfortable up there. So so that just shows you how you can be right next to them. And unless you actually look at them and notice them, you wouldn't see them. Another time, uh, much later on, a few years later on, when I was leading a, a group, I think of students as well, rather than clients, also in the same area along the Limpopo, between the fever tree forest and, and the Mapani shrub that was coming down, walking on a very, very prominent game trail, like a almost a motorway, but very open, very short dry grass, nowhere to hide. And behind a very, very small, sparse bush, probably no more than a foot high, suddenly a, a female leopard just jumped up and ran away from us when we were walking down this game path. And she was, I doubt, more than two meters in front of us when she ran. So she'd been lying flat behind this tiny bush, which was the only cover, and she would have been waiting in ambush. So it was early, early in the morning, first light. She would have been waiting in ambush for some prey animal to, to be going down to the river to drink along this main game trail. and. When we walked down it, she realised that we were not prey and upped and ran away. I honestly didn't see her and I was leading that group of students down there at all until she moved. and There was almost no, no cover.
1: The fact that you were converging meant that she had to budge. But had you been on a course just um, trending a few metres away, she might have just held her ground and just kept stealthy perhaps?
0: Absolutely. In my experience, they don't move unless they feel threatened. I've reasonably often seen leopard on a rock or on a tree at a distance, and we sort of walk obliquely, not directly at them. If you walk directly at them, they're gone. But if you walk obliquely past them, but, but narrowing the gap slightly so you can get a bit closer, but you've got to judge the, the, the zones. You know, The moment you get into their fight-or-flight zone, or their warning zone, their behavior changes, and, and they'll almost certainly take flight. But if you can keep just out of their comfort zone, sometimes you can get quite a nice, a close encounter. I had one in, in Botswana, actually, where we had a, a female up on a rocky ridge, and we managed to, to get really very close. And she was so relaxed, and we took so long, so stealthily, but overtly. We, we didn't hide because... She's going to know where we are anyway. But we, so we let her know where we were, but we walked past in a way that was non-threatening. And we slowly, slowly, slowly over the space of about 40, 50 minutes closed the gap until we got to probably no more than 50 meters or so from her. And I sat the whole group down and we spent, uh, well, until, until the sun went down watching her and then we moved off. So it is possible, but it doesn't happen often
1: but it's including when they're eating as well. I mean even if they're threatened by another animal they'll carry on eating because it's obviously so important to get their get their energy requirements. They'll do it till the last second won't they till they need to budge.
0: Yes, I mean they will wolf down whatever they can. Obviously in Africa they are not the apex predator. There are other animals that will steal their their kills from them. So they tend to drag their prey to somewhere safe, ideally up in the air. So they'll they'll try and take them up into trees or up into rocks if they've got those available to them. And they will drag them quite some distance. We've often found drag marks first thing in the morning, fresh drag marks uh, from that morning, and we've trailed them. I think the furthest I ever trailed was about 700 metres or so, Good which grief. is a huge distance, yeah. So quite often, you know, quite far to the place that they feel is safe. And then they'll drag it right up into a tree. Usually by the time we get there, the prey item is still in the tree, but the animal is gone because it's seen us coming from far off, you know. In a vehicle, you can often get an awful lot closer. They're much more nervy of people on foot than they are of people in vehicles. a vehicle is seen as being a different animal. An upright form of a human is basically a threat to all animals. It creates unease and fear in just about every animal in the bush. But once you're in a vehicle, that changes. I mean, I've been very, very close to to leopards in vehicles that are completely open. In fact, right underneath trees or right next to kills within a few meters, and they don't really worry about it. I've had one instance where we parked next to a tree. I saw a leopard from quite a distance back and moved the vehicle. To get a bit closer without uh, causing it any disturbance, and then turned off the engine and started to slowly discuss the animal and the tree. And after about a, a minute or so, the guest behind me just said, um, Mark, where are we looking? I, I, I can't see any animal. So I just turned to the Land Rover full of guests and I said, uh, Is anybody else not see the leopard? And uh, everybody said to me, No, I don't see where are looking? And I said, okay, well, let's look at that big leadwood that is about 40 meters off to our right. And if you go back behind it, there's a jackalberry, and, which is the dark green leaf tree. And if you go two thirds of the way up, lying on the big branch, you can see quite clearly there's a leopard lying there in the shade. Another minute passed and no one could see it. And eventually someone who had binoculars said, oh, no, I can't see. Oh, there's a snake there. And I said, well, if you follow that snake up, I'm sure you'll find that it's attached to a spotty body. Yeah, sure enough. Eventually, everybody saw it. And then they just said to me, I can't believe we didn't see that. It makes no sense. It's so obvious, yet we didn't see it. And I think the lesson there is that unless you know what you're looking for, and obviously we spend a huge amount of time in the bush and we train ourselves to... Look for the telltale signs of various animals that we're looking for. Leopards, being one of the most elusive, are are ones that we actively try and and seek out. And we'll know the kind of places where they're likely to be and the times of day that we're likely to find them, where they've been seen before or where their territories are. If you're working and operating in an area uh, regularly, you'll get to know more or less where the various territories are of the individuals. And if you go and look for them on the boundaries of those territories, you've got a much greater chance of, of getting an encounter. Even if you know what you're looking for, they're very, very hard to spot.
1: Of course, even the, the big ungulates that you were farming, those Colomorph examples, they can be stealthy at times, can't they? Just like deer in Britain. They can just sort of melt away and uh, be still. Then you'll only see them if an ear twitches or something.
0: Extraordinary enough, you wouldn't believe it, but of all the animals that... I'm most wary of, my greatest love, but also I'm most wary of in the African bush are are elephants. You can be within a few feet of an elephant in not that thick bush and not see it until something moves. People won't believe that until you actually go walk in the bush, but you can walk right past an elephant and, you know, something will give it away like the snap of a twig or the flap of an ear or the rumble of a stomach or the smell. I mean we use all our senses when we're walking, particularly. They have a very earthy, sort of gamey smell. But yeah, animals are stealthy. That's how they survive.
1: Just to finish off the goosebump moments. The encounter with a lioness. If we could hear about that, that would be great.
0: Sure. So again I was training students at the stage and also in the same part of the Kruger National Park, right up in the north. An area next to the Luvuvu River is a triangle between the Lvivu and the Limpopo. And right down on the corner where the two meet is, is an area called Crook's Corner, which is fairly well known in, in history. There, there's a large fever tree forest. We were walking through this area, which has almost no grass, so it's a little bit like an English pasture, you know, very, very short, grazed, and then the sort of dappled shade from these fever trees. And quite some distance away, probably 300 meters or so away, I noticed a movement and I saw that there was a a fairly large lioness descending a bank onto this floodplain and walking across across us through the floodplains, but quite some distance away. So I just said to the group of students, let's just drop our day packs down and sit on the packs on the ground and just, just watch what happens. And behind her came another lioness, and then came a couple of, not tiny, but definitely cubs. They'd gone beyond the spotty stage. They were moving with the pride, but they're probably no more than four or five months old. And behind them, more lion were, were coming out of the bush off the ridge line and dropping down onto the plain. And they were walking across the open ground, completely open in front of us. And suddenly, one of the cubs... Looked our way and stopped. And then it decided it wasn't sure what we were because we're now sitting on the ground. One of the reasons why I make people sit on the ground is it breaks our silhouette. I mentioned earlier, you know, this built in fear of us as two legged human beings. So if you break your silhouette by being in a vehicle or by sitting on the ground or changing the way you stand, your posture, you become less threatening. By sitting in a huddle on the ground, we were possibly uh, a troop of baboons or anyway, we were something but not human. One of these cubs saw us and it started walking directly towards us, fairly boldly. The other one then saw its brother or sister and decided, well, it was going to follow because it seemed like a good idea. They covered the ground fairly quickly to probably no more than 100 meters or so from us. When The mother, who had now come out of the ridge and dropped down onto the plane, looked across, was obviously concerned that her cubs were going off on their own. And then she also saw us. And she also wasn't quite sure, but she very quickly moved behind the cubs and then got up to them, at which point she knew exactly what we were, and she just kept coming. As she sort of crossed, there was a point at which uh, I knew she was going to continue to come. So I just said to the group, just stand up, leave your packs. And I look back over my shoulder. I isolated a tree and I told them, just move back to that tree and wait for me there. Now, we walk with a rifle for these kind of emergencies. And the way we walk when we're training guides is I will walk as an instructor at the lead and behind me will be my backup. And my backup is a student who has passed their qualification to be a backup, but they haven't yet had enough experience or enough encounters to be signed off as a lead guide. So my backup was with me, and the two of us were standing facing this lioness, because you don't turn your back, and you never never run from any kind of predator. You stand a very good chance of triggering the the chase response. So we stood, and just stood still and let her come. Hoping, I was just hoping she was going to stop. She got to about 30 meters or so. She did stop and gave me a warning growl, at which point I just started talking to her and just saying, it's okay, we're moving back. And my backup, Sky, grabbed my collar and walked back. So I was walking backwards with my rifle aimed at her in case she decided to come the last 30 meters. But Sky was holding my collar and he was ready to come to support me, but he was basically my eyes walking back because I didn't want to stumble and and lose my fix on her. And she kept coming and stopping and coming and stopping. And every time she came, she would come towards us. I would stop and shout her down. And then she would stop. And then as soon as she was calm, I'd say, okay, girl, we're moving back. And then I'd Reverse back out a bit more, and she would come again. And she pushed us all the way back to almost to where the group was. So that's another hundred meters at least. She kept pushing us, and it was interesting. I I mentioned the story when we were talking the other day because you showed me that footage of the puma doing the same to that walker on the road, just coming forward and doing that poor swatting, making herself look big to push him away from the cubs. And this lioness was doing exactly the same. But after she'd come at me two or three times, I realized that she didn't have the intent. She she wasn't interested in actually taking me down. She was just trying to push me away and and protect the cubs. But the cubs, of course, were at that curious stage. so They they kept coming with her, and so she just kept having to push me back. But eventually, she was comfortable with the distance that we moved back and let us go on our way. And then she just turned and took the cubs back to the rest of the pride.
1: Okay, what an experience, because there's a technical, procedural way of dealing with that, which you've just explained, but there's also just holding your nerve and keeping your composure. And I guess as much as you know to do that in the moment, does having the firearms give you a comfort blanket to some extent? It's still a challenge to shoot at a lion that's uh, coming at you, presumably.
0: Absolutely. I mean, we obviously train for it in terms of we, we talk through these scenarios and then we practice it. Part of the Trails Guide, and we have to renew it every two years, is something called Advanced Rifle Handling, which is a series of timed drills on a range. And the, the last exercise there is what well, used to always traditionally be a charging lion target. It's basically a live-size poster of, of a lioness that moves on a sled towards you on a pulley at speed, and you've got to hit it in a brain shot with a four-five-eight rifle or three-seven-five whatever rifle we're, we're carrying for the task. Now, if you think of the lion's brain as about the size of a tennis ball, and it's moving at you at a speed of around about 22 meters per second, you don't really have time to even really think about it. It's it's instinctive shooting, which is why we have to practice and why we train. As an instructor, I get to spend a lot of time or I used to get to spend a lot of time on the range that you can do all the training you want but at the end of the day experience is champion you know that's the key here you just hope that you get experiences without actually having to ever use it and you know I have to say I don't know whether by good luck or good training or whatever but I mean in the sort of four and a half five thousand hours of bush walking in big five areas I've done I've never thankfully had to shoot an animal so i've been very close on several occasions but i've never actually had to shoot an animal which is the way obviously we want to we try to not create any impact at all we're trying to allow people to be a part of that environment without causing any any harm or, or distress to the animals if possible
1: yeah sure Several times I've had to witness reports in Britain which, to me, appear to be a leopard charge when it's um, confronting somebody at speed but then stops. And, of course, they didn't know it was going to stop, so they're particularly concerned and scared.
0: What I always say, Rick, to to my students is if, if a leopard is intent on causing you harm, you're not going to really know about it. I mean, you will by the time you know about it, it's going to be too late. Uh, if you're lucky, you will be able to protect yourself enough that you will survive. But, it, you know, if, if it's really intent, it's coming. I mean, the lion's going at 22 meters per second. The leopard's moving faster, anywhere up to 25 meters per second. Incredibly powerful, fast burst of speed. And they're ambush predators. You know, they're, they're not making themselves obvious. The first. You see will be a blur. The next thing you'll know is, is you'll be hit with something akin to being hit with a Mike Tyson, I would imagine, or something like that. I'll never forget going to Maholo rehabilitation. We caught a, a leopard on a farm in a live trap and we took it there for a couple of weeks until they could find a, a home to relocate it. And it was in quite a, a large run cage. And I went there with Brian Jones, the owner. He wanted to show me just exactly how fast these things move. And we went to the edge of the cage. And there was a young male that was probably 30 meters away at the other other end of the run. I didn't even see it. I was looking in the space. It was just hiding behind a a, a tire, an old tire. And he just touched the side of the cage. And all I saw was just a blur of movement. And the next thing, this animal was on the weld mesh at my face. I didn't see the moment it left. The cover where it was, I just saw movement, and then I just saw this thing hit the cage in front of me, and then it was gone back into cover. And I just thought to myself, "Wow, if it means business with you, there's just no way you're going to ever be able to defend yourself against that." Uh, But luckily for us, that's not their uh, modus operandi. I mean, they're just not really interested in taking us down. We're, We're not seen as prey; we are seen as a threat, and they try and keep away from us. So. I don't perceive them as being a threat unless they are threatened by us. So if you corner them, if they're injured or wounded, what worries me, uh Rick, you know, I hear I've been trying to catch up with your podcasts, you know, from day 1 and I think I'm on 75 or something now. And a couple of times people have mentioned that they hit a black panther in the car. You know, I always think to myself in those kind of situations, I wonder if it ever goes through anybody's mind to to stop and to see what they've hit can you imagine if you've hit the back end of a leopard you've 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 paralyzed its its back end and it's dragged itself into the, into the verge and you you know you walk down to follow up to see what you've hit i mean that sort of situation is potentially lethal because even a paralyzed leopard would cause you you know probably fatal damage or perhaps a a mother with cubs in in a barn or an old abandoned mine shaft or some sort of a cave or something like that. Mothers protecting any young of any species are incredibly dangerous. So these kind of situations, potentially, if people try and get all clever and start to, to hunt or shoot these things and wound them, which is more likely than not, If you speak to any of the big game hunters, the one thing they never want to do is follow up on a client's wounded leopard. In fact, I've had to follow up twice on wounded leopards that were hit by cars. So where we used to live and farm was on the border of the greater Kruger National Park. It's a lot of private reserves on the edge of the Kruger National Park, and the main road there Quite often, we would get reports into the Farm Watch that I was a member of that someone had hit a leopard or a cheetah. You know, you would go out to see where this animal was and um, sometimes have to track it over the fence and into the bush. And you could see clearly where it had been hit by a car. And I can tell you that that was really nerve wracking to follow up wounded animals
1: they will do a very blatant charge at you, a bit like a gorilla's bluff charge. You know, they come towards you and then stop. Is that just a warning and saying, this is my comfort zone, you stay clear of it? Is it as simple as that? Is it just a warning to hold your ground?
0: Yeah, most animals will offer a warning charge if they feel threatened and they, and they want to get space. Leopards will do that as well. they quite often vocalise before. Lions will also do it. A sort of low growl as a warning. So if you were in a thick bush or some sort of cover and you couldn't see the animal and you get this kind of low growl like a
1: coffee grunty noise.
0: Yes it's a sort of coffee grunty growl. It's almost a rumble if you like. It's very guttural, very deep and I don't think you really need to be an expert or specialist to know what it means. It definitely means I don't want you here. So uh, again, d- don't run away, don't turn your back, just slowly walk backwards and you know, take yourself away from that situation. That generally happens. If you're in open ground, if they feel there's no other way, then you might get a warning charge. It's possible. They're going to run. They're looking to flee rather than fight most of the time, unless there's something, some other circumstance which is forcing them to fight.
1: On the final close encounter business There's different types of what we might describe as stalking, but the one that we get here that is explained consistently several times by people for black ones as well as tan-coloured pumas is that they're keeping a same distance or sometimes closing the distance with somebody behind and often diagonally behind, but shadowing them. And if that person stops and looks round, they tend to stop and crouch down and do nothing until the, the movement of the person is continuing and then they just shadow them and continue and close the gap slowly so following and hiding is it well the cougar guidelines in america say the behavior is either ushering you away for some reason or assessing the chances of a successful and risk-free strike and it could be of course at you or your dog or something so is that about right do you think for leopards as well
0: The two instances where I would imagine that that's really a possible scenario would be dogs. So people walking dogs, particularly smallish dogs, sort of spaniel and smaller. I mean, dogs are a favorite prey species or item. Canids are favored by leopards for sure. So, you know, we know that they will predate uh, uh, in Africa, bat-eared foxes and jackals. Here, they predate foxes. So... Small dogs are definitely on the menu. I mean, in Africa, we don't leave dogs on farms out at night. Uh, You won't expect to find them in the morning. So dogs are definitely a potential prey species. And if you were walking with a small dog, I could imagine that a leopard that was hungry could well be fixated and interested in that. And the reason why it hasn't charged and taken the dog is because the human being is there. So it's sort of trying to weigh up, You know, am I going to get over my fear of the person versus that dog is looking very tasty.
1: Exactly how we've interpreted those cases, I think.
0: The other instance where potentially there's a problem, and I think it's something we certainly shouldn't panic about, but we should be aware of, is potentially with very small children. I know from my experience in Africa that when we have babies or young children, we don't walk with them in the bush because there's regulations about how old a child can be before before we go walking in Big Five, just purely for command and control of of your guests. It's hard to keep control of people when you've got an elephant charging down at you at 40 miles an hour. On vehicles, we we take families, and it's fascinating. You know, if, if, if I happen to be in a lion sighting or uh, a leopard sighting, and the cat is relaxed and sleeping. The moment a baby cries or a young child speaks, that cat is wide awake and looking straight at the source of that noise. So they have this sort of fascination with youngsters. Now, I've never heard of or had an instance where they've acted on that, but they just had this absolute curiosity as soon as they hear either young children or babies so i could imagine if there were young children walking with adults or by themselves that they there may be some following in that scenario where you know where they are just really curious now whether that then translates into a danger or not i think would depend on the situation it could potentially uh, but i think it's more curiosity or it's again this balance between well, hang on, I see that as being a threat, but it's very small and therefore I don't see it threatening. It's that trying to work out what to do about it.
1: In fact, two cases, one we've heard on the podcast, that I've heard two cases of young children, sort of 10 to 12 years old, would have been high-pitched voices, excitable, in the evenings playing with torches and running about in in the landscape, in the countryside. And seeing big eyeshine at them and concluding it was a big cat, just running away in fear because they'd seen that they were being observed as they were doing this, playing these games with their torches in the evenings, ending up being very frightened.
0: Yeah, doesn't surprise me.
1: There's one other time when um, people have been followed, stalked, if you like, and there wasn't a dog with them. And the two ca- these two cases that spring to mind – both times it was a woman, in one case it was two young teenage girls, but wearing perfume. Was the perfume the issue, do you think?
0: I find it fascinating. I mean, in the podcast, you've mentioned a couple of times the use of perfume for attracting leopards. It's entirely possible. I mean, obviously there's been some tests done and there seems to be some sort of reaction. I mean, scent is all important to them. They do scent marks. Cats have an extraordinary number of scent glands on their bodies. If you have a domestic cat, you will know that every time you come home or whatever, it'll, it'll walk up to you and it'll rub itself on you. It'll rub its chin on you. It'll rub its ears on you. It'll rub its tail against you. You know, it makes its tail stiff and brings its tail across you. And there's a reason for that. I mean, the, those are all scent glands on the cat and it is putting its scent on you. It, it's marking you as being a part of its pride or a part of its territory, if you like. They use scent. So I think it's entirely plausible that if someone was wearing a scent and that scent in some way interacted with the animal, I think it's possible.
1: Thank you for all of that Close Encounter stuff. And if we get on to the track and sign and behaviour issues now. When we met a couple of weeks ago, I showed you a good many photos of what we have largely, myself and other contacts, have concluded are, in our view, as definite as we can be, sure as we could be, different tracks and signs of large cats like leopards. And those are from carcasses to prints to scratch and rake marks to scent marks. I mean, broadly, how did you find that material?
0: Track and sign is, it's a little bit of science and it's a lot of kind of experience and and gut feel as well. The more you look at something or the more you study an animal and follow an animal and observe an animal, you can picture what went on through the track and sign that you see. It's very hard. I mean, a lot of the times you'll show me or or someone will show me a photograph of, of a footprint or of just a single thing and they'll be like, oh, what's that? Now, you know, you may have a, a gut feel and you can look at it and there are certain telltale signs that will point you one way or the other. But in track and sign, we tend to look at the, the whole. So we'll look at something and go, OK, well, I'm, my feel is that that's a leopard track. Now, how am I going to prove that to myself or disprove it? And you look for other evidence to support it. So you look at, you know, the way that animal has walked, you know, how the gait is, whether it's been direct registering, you know, whether it's under-registering or over-registering, whether it's scent marks somewhere. There's lots of other things we can look for, hair, whether there's tail drag somewhere. In Africa, of course, a lot of our tracking is done on very dry, dusty conditions. So we get a lot of sign in the dust. But you can also find grass that's bent and broken. If there's been a kill action like that, you you can see drag marks, you can see hair, you can see the way An animal has eaten on that carcass. So, leopards are fairly specific in the way they will eat. They tend to start at the groin or the rump, the haunches, and eat their way forward. They don't like to eat the hair, particularly, and they don't like to eat feathers on birds. So, they have very, very rough tongues, and they actually will pluck the animals first and then consume the meat, and then they'll work their way up through the offal. They won't eat the stomach contents, but they will eat the organs, the major organs, and they'll eat maybe some of the cartilage off the bones, some of the soft cartilage, but they don't eat bones. When we find carcasses, as many of those photographs were that you showed me, that have had the whole skin peeled up from the back to the front with the whole of the haunches and the main organs eaten, that's a fairly telltale sign that it's a big cat that's done that, for example. So, yeah, lots of lots of that sign is to me pretty conclusive. I mean, if I were in, in Africa, I would just say straight away that's leopard. And not everything, but a lot of those photographs of the various things you showed me, and a lot of scratches on the trees. Uh leopards have interdigital glands as well. So even between their claws, they have glands. And one of the reasons for raking down a tree apart from keeping their claws sharp is that they actually have scent glands between their claws that's a part of their scent marking it's a very typical cat behaviour
1: Often of course we're hampered by being on private land and you've wandered a bit off a footpath to something which attracts your attention and the more you try and fill in the gaps of what you're trying to investigate the more you'd be trespassing or the more you'd be uh, if it's on public land you're disturbing other visitors you're you know doing things which look suspicious around other dog walkers it's so often there are intimidating reasons why you cannot get a handle on the full picture because it's not your land as it were very frustrating actually following up track and sign in Britain I find. You're talking about carcasses. Could we just talk about the actual dispatch locomotion? Because it's now increasingly the more footage you see on TV on these sort of supposed ambush predators. You see them running at further distances that you imagine they're capable of in terms of their limited stamina. So can you give us examples of leopards running different distances for different motivations? If they flee, you're saying they can run at full tilt for much further than I'd imagined, for example.
0: The basic thing is that they are ambush predators. So we need to understand they're not chase predators. They're not like cheetah, for example, or wild dogs that will run their prey down. They rely on stealth and they rely on ambush. In their natural form, you know, their coat is dappled to blend in. They will spend a great deal of time stalking a prey. And they will try and get to ideally within about five meters. So what's that, 15, 16 feet, something like that is their preferred distance to launch their attack. And they will probably only chase that animal down for another 10 meters or so, so 30 feet or so. So they really are all about the explosive power and the ambush. So get close. It's like a coiled spring. They explode out all muscle. They grab their prey, bring it down, successful hunt. If they have to end up chasing that prey beyond 10 or 15 meters, they pretty much give up every time, unless it's something that is definitely handicapped, weakened, young, that they feel that it's worth the effort of chasing beyond. But if it's a fit, healthy prey species, after 10 or 15 meters, they're going to give up, generally. So in that respect, you're absolutely right. They are very much ambush predators. They're very much short-distance, high-energy chasers. But if the needs are there, they can run for great distances and at quite a speed. But that's not to bring prey down, that's usually to get away from danger. If they're escaping from a threat situation, so let's say they are being chased by a lion or you know, some other predator, they can run at a hell of a pace for a very long time. So it's not that they can't do it, it's just that they don't employ that as a, a successful hunting technique. I can't remember what the exact percentages are, but for every metre that the chase goes beyond 10 metres, there's quite an exponential drop in the success rate.
1: Good stuff. And well, I think uh, Puma's mountain lions are pretty similar, actually, in all of that. And, and of course, they're pretty similar in, in so many ways, and so interesting that they both seem to be here successfully. Could we turn on to the prey dispatch methods now and the signs of that I think one of the things that I think is most easily seen when we're looking at a carcass is what I call a muzzle hold suffocation because you'll see a deer and it'll be filleted out and got other telltale signs of a potential cat impact but you'll see around the nose and mouth a lot of stress and some chomped Skin and tissue. So, so something has had it round the snout, as it were, and held it and chomped through. So that, I would call that a muzzle hold suffocation. But the more common one is the canines clamping the windpipe for suffocation. But there's also a nape bite. And there's also what you might call a, just a straightforward explosive, um, as on smaller prey perhaps, cuff punch, which presumably breaks the neck. That to me is four different predation techniques. Is that how you see it? Is that pretty much correct?
0: Yeah, I'm only aware of four. So it's generally prey size specific. The cuffing you're talking about is usually for small prey. So if they were taking a rabbit or a hare or a fawn or something very small, preferred method is just to give it a a mighty swipe with a paw and it breaks its spine and cripples it immediately. That's the normal takedown method for, for very small animals. If you're looking at rhodian sheep, I imagine you'll find that the majority of them will have the bite marks in the back of the neck, at the base of the skull, because generally on that kind of size animal, they will just come in behind and one bite to the back of the neck and paralyze it by crushing its spinal column at the base of the skull. They don't use that on a much bigger animal, because a bigger animal will be harder for them to make sure that they've paralyzed it, and it can cause some damage from failing hooves and stuff. For the the slightly bigger animals, I guess, then you're going into asphyxiation. So you've got a throat bite. They'll go under the throat rather than crush from the back. So they'll grab it by the windpipe and take it down. And then if it's too big to kind of hold down, if it's really struggling and they're really struggling to suffocate it through the windpipe, they can move their bite onto the nose and clamp the muzzle of the prey animal. it that way, but that's usually for much bigger animals. So, for example, in Africa, I would expect that on something like a zebra or a wildebeest or an eland or an oryx or, you know, one of the much bigger antelope, bearing in mind that a leopard can take a prey species up to 10 times its size and body weight. So that's fairly uh, impressive ratio, but then it's going to definitely be using a muzzle clamp to asphyxiate that animal. Yeah,
1: yeah. Same with pumas, is how I think it works. But I would say that a reasonable number of sheep and deer, standard adult size fallow and roe deer, have what seems to be the telltale impacts of stress at the muzzle. And I don't think it's a fox has come and tried to bite the tongue out of a carcass. I think it is very much looking like stress of the snout.
0: Let's face it. I mean, we're suspecting that the species or subspecies that we have here is not African, and my experience obviously is the African animals, and melanistic leopards here are more forest-dwelling species. Maybe they have a slightly different modus operandi possibly, or maybe they are just smaller, younger animals. I think it's a ratio of leopard to prey. If you've got a a young small female, she's going to probably go for a a muzzle clamp more than perhaps a big tom that can easily just crush it from a a mate bite, for example. Okay.
1: They're very adaptive in so many ways, including on their diet. Obviously, they are largely strict carnivores. You you know some exceptions to that. What's your experience on their eating habits in, in Africa and the scat that you found as a result of their diet?
0: Yes, they are scientifically, technically strict carnivores, but they do push the boundaries slightly. So they are also very opportunistic. They become very specialists. So you'll find in certain areas, they will develop a skill set for tackling certain prey. So in certain areas, you'll have leopard that specialize in hares or rabbits. In other areas, they may specialize in ground birds. Other areas, they may go for porcupines, which are incredibly difficult to take down, but are favored in terms of the quality of the meat. Some leopards have worked out how to predate porcupines, for example. Generally, they go for small to medium-sized ungulates. The majority of, of leopard will prey on that diet base, but it then goes both sides. So they'll go, as I said, up to large ungulates, and I mean, they'll eat mice, literally. They'll eat a mouse whole.
1: We see that on thermal camera with Don's work in Derbyshire, what we know now as a puma from the vocalisation in his subsequent footage. So we see that you know foraging at uh, late dusk in pasture land in, in Derbyshire. It seems to be mousing. And, and Don said there's leverets there yeah. and then uh, different times of year, pheasants. And we tend to think of them as going for bigger prey items as ambush predators. But there we are foraging for small snacky prey is, is quite in order as well.
0: Absolutely. And they'll go for whatever's easy, whatever's easy and whatever's preferable, including reptiles. I've seen frogs, snakes, lizards go through. What else have we seen? Birds, even birds' eggs occasionally, and occasionally insects as well. I, I once watched a female eating termite elates. So when the queens come out of the termite mound and, and they fly to go and set up new colonies, they they come out. They're quite, quite a nice, fat, juicy insect meal. And I've watched a young female just sitting at a termite mound, literally just licking up these termite elates as they came out. You know, insects. Even they will take the opportunity of whatever they can get that makes sense.
1: So typical scat, Mark. Your description of typical scat that you'd find from the average leopard.
0: Yeah, obviously depends on on what they've eaten, Rick. But um, generally, it's sort of blackish green when it's fresh because there's been usually a lot of meat consumed. And it will dry to a sort of pale whitish green and then go whiter as it dries. Not as much as canid scat because there's less bones in there, but they do get quite a bit of calcium from the cartilage. And it will dry lighter and whiter. And if they've eaten small rodents and small animals, then the hair could well be present in the scat as well. It's long, thin, segmented, and often tapered right down to a point, a little bit like sort of wattle and daub in the old houses. The foxes, the way they colon, it actually makes the scat spiral like a corkscrew, whereas with the cats, it tends just to be more pointed. It'll twist a bit, but it doesn't have that same sort of corkscrew look to it so much all carnivores have strong smelling scat
1: I mean people say here quite metallic you know you can smell the blood in it uh, perhaps as well
0: that would make sense because I mean obviously blood is metallic smelling tasting smelling and they're great flesh and blood consumers so that would make sense I think it's more acrid than that that but- I don't think it's something that I really put high up on the priorities of identification of leopard scat, which is interesting.
1: Sure, okay. Well, can we go to another aspect of smell? Well, two more aspects of smell. The smell of a leopard in terms of its body and its fur and its its glands, as it were. This occurred to me once at a a rural show. I was in Buckinghamshire with Paolo and this South African lady came in uh, and she was showing us a picture of a carcass on her phone a road deer carcass in the woodland and she said in her south african a- accent she, she said i was walking in a wood in the chilterns with a friend of mine and she said Do you know what? I smell leopard. And she moved back here from Britain for many years after half a lifetime in South Africa. And I thought, what did she mean by smelt leopard? And she said, five minutes later in the woodland, I came across this and she showed the photo of the eaten out roe deer carcass, which was a very good bet for big cat carcass impact. You told me in the pub it's a popcorn type smell that you would liken it to most, the smell of a leopard.
0: So when we come across. The scent in the bush, you know, I'll often stop with my students or, or my guests and ask them what they smell. And more often than not, we get butter popcorn as a description for the smell. I guess nutty would also work, but it's that butter popcorn popping smell, that fresh popcorn. Now, I'm wondering if that is animal per se, Rick, or whether it's from the scent marking from the anal gland. Because... They obviously have a gland in, in the urine as well, but, uh, which is more ammonia. But, but if they're uh, using the anal gland to scent mark, I, I'm wondering whether that may lead to that nutty popcorn smell. It's only when it's really fresh. You know, first thing in the morning before the heat's come onto the area, if a cat's been down in the last hour or two and it's scent marked, you'll get that butter popcorn uh, smell. And it's quite distinctive. You'll know it when you smell it. I mean, I think people just say, I smelt a leopard because they've seen a leopard, they can smell it because it's just scent marked. And, you know, that scent will, to our nose, will fade relatively quickly. But obviously to a leopard, it stays there for, for a while. But I mean, leopard will, like a male, will probably in Africa, every three, four, five days, it'll come back and re-scent mark on its territory. So, you know, even for them, they're continually updating that signpost to tell the other leopards that this is the edge of my boundary
1: yeah yeah okay and and in terms of their their own sense of smell i mean do we go too much on what corbett's writing from india said he did contradict himself because he also said sometimes they did have good smell he's more sort of famously known for saying that they had poor smell he wouldn't really worry about judging the wind direction, if he was stalking leopards, because he thought, well, they couldn't smell very well anyways, what, what he wrote anyway. What do you make of that? Do you, do you feel it's the weaker of their senses, but it's still pretty good?
0: They do have a sense of smell. There's no doubt about it. They wouldn't have all these scent glands, and they wouldn't spend so much time scent marking if they didn't have a sense of smell. Where I think people get confused is they don't really use smell as a hunting sense. So they are ambush- predators, they are sight predators. They use hearing and they use sight predominantly in hunting. They're not really using smell, but they will go to great lengths to make sure that they are downwind of their prey so that the prey don't pick up their scent. So although they may have a low odour, so they will go downwind, but I don't think they use smell particularly in I mean, obviously, it's not important in ambush. They're using hearing and they're using sight. But to say they don't have smell, I think, can't be right because they also scavenge massively. One of their main food sources is scavenging. And you don't find scavenge items by sight or by hearing, you find it by smell. So I disagree. I think they do use their sense of smell. And I think they have a a good sense of smell. I'm sure it's not their primary sense in the hunt but i'm sure they do use it as a part of their daily lives for both receiving and sending scent marking and for scavenging
1: i've mentioned on the podcast recently that i've taken on a sort of stray cat my mini little black panther now that lives with us (laughs) and uh, he's great fun and, and i learn a lot from him yeah watch his behavior and the other day, because I didn't fancy seeing it happen on our patio, I confiscated a rabbit that he was dragging up the garden path and was going to finish off on our patio. So I decided that um, it was okay in the field, but I didn't quite, just before supper time at our place, want to see that scene on the patio. So I confiscated it from him, with, and he made a lot of fuss and grumble as, as that happened. The rabbit scurried away, and I think it was probably mortally wounded, unfortunately, but it scurried away. Now, when he was allowed out an hour later, it was like watching a dog on a scent. I didn't really think cats had this in them, but he actually you know, patrolled around the garden and, and obviously was following at the scent of where this rabbit had been. Yeah. To see that behaviour, because he was so motivated, it was the only sense he could resort to to try and get back to his quarry.
0: Yeah. I'm sure that leopard will use their sense of smell. Yeah, as I said, I don't think it's their primary method of hunting, but if they catch something on the wind, they're going to go find it. If they, in exactly that's sort the of case, you know, they've got an injured animal, I'm sure they will follow up using their nose. I mean, they have a keen sense of smell. Whether it's as good as a cannid, uh, I doubt. Okay.
1: Thank you for all this experience from the African perspective. And and we're going to switch to Britain now and what you make of Britain and Reflections. But before that, you wanted to touch on something which you observe in the African situation when you meet people as they observe wildlife. And what I think you're picking up from some of the sort of descriptions from me and others on the podcast is this anthropomorphism, the way we attach human emotion and human observations and human interpretations to the animal kingdom. Can you give us some examples of why you think we've got to be aware of anthropomorphism?
0: It's something I bring out regularly with with students when we're going through lectures on the trails guide courses with Fagasa. We need to be very wary of putting human emotion to animals. There's no doubt that certain animal species are more emotive than others. So, you know, for example, if we were discussing elephants, I would definitely argue that they're are a number of emotions within an elephant that could be perhaps equated across to human emotions, because they are highly intellectual and probably in some way emotive creatures. But the majority of animals by nature act on an instinctive basis. They operate within defined parameters. And we as humans are always trying to put our complex emotive feelings onto an animal. I mean, I heard the other day, well, if it didn't have a mate, it would be so sad if it didn't have a mate. Well, it wouldn't be sad because it's a and It wouldn't feel sadness for it. It is programmed to want a mate. It would spend its life looking for a mate because that is a part of its behavior and its programming. To suggest that it would have a human feeling of sadness, I think is getting into dangerous territory. I also I'm not a leopard, so therefore I don't know whether it actually would feel sad or not. But I think the point is that we have to look at animals as behaving within parameters of animal behavior and not necessarily taking on human emotions. So things like, you know, happiness, sadness, love, vengeance or hatred, you know, to suggest that an animal that has been hurt in some way will become vengeful is highly unlikely now again there are certain higher species that possibly could start feeling some of those emotions or start acting on those emotions but most animals wouldn't and i think it's uh, something that we need to be very wary of is putting human emotion into to animals
1: well, let's test this on, on one example then that I've used a couple of times, and I think it's not quite about emotion, it's, it's more about a deeper sense of behaviour. When I've said if we captured one, and we come on to, to trapping leopards in, in a minute and your experience of that, and took it to a wildlife park or a zoo to observe it, that would crush its spirit. Now, I would say that I'm not quite talking about for human emotion, I'm talking about you're suppressing its behavioural uh, potential by doing that. Can I get away with that? Is that all right?
0: I think you're allowed that one, Just. I mean, at the end of the day, if you put a wild animal in a cage, it is stressed. It's not able to, to live in the way that it's intended to, and it will exhibit stress, which you can describe as crushing its spirit, as in it will not live in its normal normal way so yeah i think you get away with that one thank you yes
1: (laughs) (laughs) but i I quite see what you mean and i think it's an important discipline for us
0: yeah and we do it all the time particularly with our pets because we you know we associate our pets with being human and i think in many ways because they spend so much time with us they take on a lot of our characteristics which perhaps does blur the lines more but certainly within wild animals i think it's a dangerous game to start putting human emotion into a wild animal
1: yeah okay you just mentioned about adaptability adaptive behavior there and i think this is for me this is one of the key factors that we are struggling with and guessing almost but i think there's something in it in the british situation in considering puma conchola in britain and considering leopard pardus in britain to me Generations on, say they've been here, been breeding to some extent for several decades now, many generations in that, there will be adaptive behavior because of our landscape, our habitats, our prey base. You could argue also that, yes, these origins, derivatives on the leopard side, may be from the Asian, from the Malay Peninsula and the Java leopards there. But now we have got our own sort of evolving subspecies in Britain. We are talking about these animals in Britain, not in other native countries. To what extent are they adapting for their lives here now?
0: Exactly why I contacted you in the first place, because I find it fascinating. Um, My experience, obviously, is with the African leopard. But what I find extraordinary is potentially what is happening here. We've potentially got a hybrid between The Malay and the Javan black leopard melanistic morphs, and they've now created a hybrid between the two of them. So there should be good genetic diversity in terms of that. And they're living in an environment that I think is ideally suited to them. I mean, it really is a perfect environment. It's not too cold. It's not too hot. It's not too wet. It's not too dry. There's plenty of uh, vegetation and cover. There's more food than they could possibly want, and more importantly than all of that, there is no predator above them. They are the apex. They are the top of the trophic triangle here, and that gives them absolutely everything they possibly need to survive and indeed thrive. Um, So yeah, I think they will adapt. I think they will adapt effortlessly. I mean, they are the incredibly adaptable species anyway. That's why they're so widespread. I think they're the most widespread feeler in the world. They are literally everywhere that is possible to be. I mean, they go from sea level to 5,000 meters or something, 4,500 meters. They go from deserts to rainforests. They go from you know hot to cold. They, they really are everywhere. Um, so they will really thrive in this very temperate climate they have here, and they will adapt to whatever challenges they have here there's no doubt about it
1: and of course what you've said just goes for puma mountain lion as well absolutely such a parallel species it's why doing this study and investigation has got that extra bonus it's not just sort of proving in quotes that they're here it's actually learning you know, that scientific aspect about how they're adapting uh, and are they a, a british subspecies already if you like if however you want to classify a subspecies that's worth doing in its own right regardless of just proving yeah i agree yeah yeah and in terms of coexisting and dealing with the odd troublesome one very challenging you know you need resources you need time you need experience and intercepting them trapping them is extremely challenging can you give some examples of when you've had to try
0: that yeah i mean they're possibly the most difficult animal to trap they're so secretive and they are so wary obviously on the farms in south africa we have a conflict with them because they're such efficient predators, they make a huge impact on our farming activities. So as conservationists, we're always trying to trap them and remove them. I mean, that's really much easier said than done. Live trapping, first off, you have to set the traps in the place where they they will come to. You have to bait them in the right way. You have to make them in some way unthreatening. And then once you Capture them, you've got to uh, sedate them, uh, remove them, and take them. (laughs) We've had uh, young males traveling more than 300 kilometers to come back to the same spot once they were relocated. Good grief. Yeah. I'm not sure what the case would be in Britain, but definitely in Africa, you have much more established territories and home ranges, and the young males tend to get pushed along by the dominant males. Until they find a spot that is, either has a, a very, very old male that they can defeat or it's empty and it doesn't have a dominant male in it. And then they'll set up their territory. So that territory happens to be on your farm and you take it away and move it somewhere else, it will keep getting pushed all the way back to where it came from. Sometimes it's better to stay with the animal you know in some cases because if you leave a vacuum, it'll get filled again. Uh, And hopefully you have an animal that doesn't prey on the species that you want to preserve. The skill behind trapping is something else again. You can set it as much as you want to, but a lot of it comes down to luck as well, I think, to be honest. They are very wily creatures.
1: They've got the wariness of going in there in the first place. And so you've got to coax them in with live bait, really, like the bleating kid goat or a chicken or something. But for ethical reasons, you have to put that in a separate compartment, really. But you've yeah. also got the problem of non-target species. Here it would be dogs, badgers, squirrels, crows going in and setting off the trap much more regularly than your main target of an apex predator going in there.
0: A trap is an alien environment. No leopard in its right mind is going to enter a trap unless whatever is tempting it in is so overpowering that it'll overcome its fear of going into this strange metal cage. The most success we've had has been with live, live bait animals, which are kept in a separate cage. You know, they're obviously protected in there. Again, it's a whole, another ethical debate as to whether the stress on that animal is justified or not. I have used chickens quite successfully, but you're right. I mean, non-target species. I'm just trying to think. I mean, we chapped one leopard off my farm. It took about four months, and I'm just trying to think how many times. I definitely caught honey badgers more than 10 times. They are the weasel stoat family. They're bigger than a polecat, but smaller than a, than a British badger, but they're incredibly tough and very resourceful. I've caught several of those little beauties and then released them. And African wildcats uh, twice, I think. Caracal once. As you say, you catch lots of other things before you catch your, your target species.
1: And then, of course, the leopard might break a canine teeth and get, it might get infected and, and very injured from that. So they can get very angry and damage themselves in a cage.
0: They do. It's really not a very satisfactory way of catching an animal. They're fine in there until you get close, but the moment you go to check the cage, they go mental and they throw themselves against their cage. They can rip their claws out on the weld mesh. They can break their canines, as you say, and cause problems. I mean, obviously we take a vet and tranquilize the animal as soon as possible, quickly shoot it out from a safe distance, try and not stress the animal too much, and then back off let the drugs take effect, and then once it's asleep we go and open the cage and remove it and do a full veterinary check, collar it, move it to a secure holding location, and then resettle it somewhere. It's not great, I have to say. I mean, it's better than the alternative, which is shooting it, but it's not ideal.
1: If you were given the task of having to intercept one in Britain, there was good grounds for for needing to intercept one because it was misbehaving or presented a risk. What would you do, Mark? Would it just be specific to the circumstances or do you think there's a key favoured method? And of course, we don't have track hounds. The landscape doesn't really lend itself to that. The logistics and practicalities of our landscape would be very difficult to use scent hounds to catch up with a big cat anyway.
0: Removing them is pretty much impossible, I would imagine. In the old days, the way any carnival was removed was through poisoning. But of course, that's not even vaguely an option these days because of the collateral damage to every sort of species, not to mention domestic animals, etc. So there's no way we can poison, nor should we, which leaves control through either humane destruction through shooting. And yes, of course, some can be and will be shot, and I'm sure have been shot. But to eradicate a population through hunting alone is pretty much impossible, unless you had, as you say, dedicated sent hands that were trained specifically to hunt those animals. And you could chase them into an area where where they're cornered and then shoot them or dart them. But again, animals that are stressed The adrenaline is pumping, that counteracts the drugs.
1: Yeah, they take longer to drop.
0: Much longer to drop, and you don't know where it's going to drop. If it's panicking, it can go into a river and drown, or it's fraught with dangers for the people doing it and for the animal itself
1: the motive of the question was more about intercepting one individually not not about eradication but of course the, the way you're ah. the way you're answering it is very interesting on both fronts but uh, say there was a thought regardless of whether one agreed with the thought that they had to be eradicated it would just be logistically and practically and affordably impossible wouldn't it basically assuming that there are a few hundred here
0: yeah in in my opinion if we assume that there's a viable genetic breed population several hundred of these animals which is entirely possible then to eradicate them I think would be pretty much impossible even if we wanted to and that's a whole other debate as you know whether it's even what we want to do you know should it be the decision to eradicate them I think it would be nigh on impossible in this day and age a single problem animal yeah well I mean I think realistically probably the the answer I'm afraid will be to destroy that animal, to shoot that animal, because you know a, a problem animal is a problem animal. Whether it be you know a dog gone out of control and is killing stock, or a, you know a big cat, if it has a propensity to create a problem to our overpopulated and very manicured world that we live in, then then it's conflict. Human wildlife conflict is something that we face all over the world. It's, it's huge problem now in India and Africa. We spend a lot of time and effort trying to de-conflict wildlife and and people. I mean, if possible, live trapping, darting, moving to some sort of a sanctuary, wildlife park or whatever. But in the end, probably the stress that that causes and the difficulty in doing it, it, sadly, probably the, the more logical option would be to destroy that animal
1: but even that's difficult even getting a safe shot even getting into the situation where you could get a safe shot day or night very very difficult
0: i mean they are primarily nocturnal i mean sure they are also crepuscular i mean they they definitely are busy at dawn and dusk but they you know they are nocturnal predators so in order to deal with them successfully you're talking about shooting them at nighttime with trained professionals with specialist equipment they can live anywhere, so they could be in quite densely populated areas. It's not going to be easy, Rick, honestly. But to be honest, I think it's better to eradicate one or two problem animals and let them coexist with us as a whole, than you know, to try and eradicate them as, as a complete species.
1: From all the feedback to me, it's very unlikely that there would be a consensus that that was desirable and wanted in the first place. So I think it's unlikely that that scenario would materialise in terms of making a judgment, making a call on their future.
0: That's encouraging.
1: Another challenging question to you. If you were given, say, five years to get more and better evidence and budget, what would you prioritise in Britain? How would you go about it to try and prove the case better and learn more about them?
0: Firstly, what are we trying to prove? I mean, I I think there's probably enough evidence out there to pretty much irrefutably say that, that we have them. What we don't know is what sort of quantities, exactly what species, and certainly not what subspecies. These are all questions we need to know. The short answer, Rick, is that money is what's required. Any kind of investigation requires time, effort, and money. So what would I think be ideal would be footage from camera traps, which would mean putting out a lot of camera traps. In my experience, we I mean I've done a lot of camera trapping in Africa and even on known marking trees and you know known territorial boundaries, you still don't get much in the way of footage. So that's hit and miss. And DNA evidence, it would be nice to be able to get a proper funding for DNA sampling whereby hopefully we can start to break down what subspecies we're talking about hopefully individual animals with spotted form each pattern is unique but with the melanistics although they have the rosettes underneath and although that they are unique it's almost impossible to see them so you know we're looking at one black leopard and and the next black leopard you can't tell the difference So we're gonna have to go for DNA to be able to tell individuals. So DNA collection, the toothpick analysis you're doing, I think is is a useful key in that direction. In a perfect world, we wouldn't need to, to trap and collar a couple of animals and release them. I know that's a whole different ball game in terms of dealing with authorities and what the implications of that are. But in terms of scientific study, The only way we're going to really understand an animal is to to monitor it and follow it. And they are so, so elusive that the only real way we can do that is by collaring them or in some way, not habituating, but getting an individual used enough to a, a researcher that it becomes slightly less furtive.
1: I get what you say about trapping and collaring one and learning about its territorial wanderings and behaviour from that. But you do that to one in North Scotland. How do we know that one in Dorset or Devon is going to behave the same and have the same scale territory? Because territory situation and prey density will vary in Britain a great deal, just like any other country. So there's only so much you can learn from radio collaring. Unless you've got a big sample size and doing it in different regions, I presume.
0: Right. But I mean, at the moment, we've got a zero sample size. So we know nothing. We are literally operating blind. If we collar one cat, we have some information. It's not enough to, to say that's the way they behave. But I mean, in an ideal situation, we would collar a sample size of 10 or 20 or 30 or, or whatever it may be. And we would start to build a picture. And we need male and female. You know, are the female home ranges overlapping? Are they big, small? There's so much variation in the studies that have been done around the world. And we have no idea whether any of those characteristics are duplicated here or whether they're behaving in an entirely different way. But again, what is the reality of being able to do that? And it's almost impossible. It's a road I don't think we're going to go down, put it that way.
1: With all of this, there's the institutional attitudes, you know, the public and government sector bodies and the private landowners from different tenures as well. So it's, it's getting that compliance and that collaboration and participation that is, is a great effort as well. That So we're all looking at this research in the same way, that to do this neutral study. So the people side of it is as difficult as the animal, biological, scientific side as well.
0: Absolutely. All I would say is that Without the knowledge, you know, we're, we're just guessing. We're just flying blind. I mean, we're, we're just assuming that, you know, characteristics and, and traits from the species in their native countries are being duplicated and replicated here, which I'm sure they are to a degree. But we really, we don't have the knowledge and, and to make any kind of decision without scientific base to base those decisions on is, is crazy. We have the cats here. They're breeding here depends which which side of the fence do you look at it as being a problem or do you look at it as being something positive positive? and what do we do about that but without information it's really very difficult i'd say
1: i know that your interest in the subject is something which means that you are going to be available for conversations and advice for us which is wonderful and We're just trying to start arrangements for episode 100, where we will have a few more people helping me interview one or two guests. And uh, if we can make the date with you, I know you'll be involved in that if if we possibly can. So we might have you again in, in five episodes time. Incidentally, listeners should know that you had a bit of a baptism on this subject through your father, who was a countryside management officer for the county council. His rangers were informally telling him that they knew about sightings and had sightings.
0: Sure. Since I was seven or eight years old, as soon as we came back from South Africa, I was aware of sightings throughout Herefordshire and Worcestershire. Uh, Not often, but was reported and, and my father used to tell me of these big cats that existed. So I have to say that none of this surprises me and I actually would find it extraordinary that there are not any big cats in Britain. I mean, we're fairly sure, well, we know, we have evidence that people released their animals and there's no reason why they shouldn't be successfully breeding. What we don't know is whether there's a viable, enough population to continue that healthy breed population going forward. We don't have so much evidence yet, but the evidence we do have, and I can't see any reason why we don't have a viable green population. What would be important for me, or what I, I think is important now, is that we get over the hurdle of, you know, do we have them, don't we have, have them, and start to accept that we do have them, and now try and find some sort of a, a way forward about how we manage this, what we do about it. As I said, I don't think it's even possible, let alone viable, to, to eradicate them. What is important for me is that the general public, particularly the the rural public, are aware of it. In much of the world, people live understanding and knowing that they live in proximity with with big cats. And I don't think it's an issue or a problem here, as long as we're aware. I think it's lack of education and stupidity that causes human conflict with, with these animals. They're trying to keep away from us. They're trying to go about their normal living function. And they will do so very effectively and very efficiently and in almost complete uh, secrecy, providing we respect them and allow them to do that without coming to conflict with them. So I think we just need to educate ourselves as to what we should and shouldn't do. You know, If we come into contact with A leopard or or a a mountain lion, what do you do? How do you deal with it? And I think these are the things that we need to make people aware of to avoid or to reduce the chance of any potential conflict.
1: The irony is even just starting the beginnings of that awareness raising and that communication effort, that has got consequences in itself, isn't it? Almost sort of bigger consequences than coexisting just generally. Communication is a real challenge so that People are proportionate in their response. Recognise that you know the message is these animals are shy and wary, not beasts on the loose, and they're far more scared of us than we are of them. Lots of challenges in that communication.
0: I think so. I think it's important to get the message out there slowly in a constructive, non-panicky way. And I think also we need to look at the benefits. At the end of the day, we don't have an apex predator, or we didn't have an apex predator. We do now. We have a huge growth in the deer population, if I read about the polecat and otters, pine martens, I mean, when I was a young lad, you never saw or even heard of these creatures. Now they're being caught regularly on our camera traps when we're looking for the cats, which is fantastic. So the fact is that we need a predator, and this is probably the ideal predator, because it, it, it will just quietly get on and do the job as long as we can keep it away from conflict. Finding that balance is the trick everywhere in the world.
1: Great. I think with that, Mark, we'll wrap it up. And thank you very much for for all of that experience. Hope to hear from you again in episode 100 if we can make that date work for you and get you involved in that. Tremendous to have your insights on this subject. So thanks ever so much for coming on Big Cat Conversations.
0: Rick, you're very, very welcome. I will love to, to be there for the hundredth if possible. So I will try that. And I just want to say, you know, as I sign off, just huge thank you to you. And as I'm finding out, your fairly extensive team now of enthusiasts throughout the whole country for just going about this topic in a sensitive and constructive manner, just trying to make people aware without sensationalizing it. I think it's really important and. Something that is desperately needed. So, thank you.
1: Well, thank you, Mark. And as I say, I've said before, it is very much a team effort and it is very multidisciplinary. And I think, you know, just a, a conversation like we've had in the last hour and a half shows that. And your background shows that you've got different skill sets. And it's about wildlife and science but it's also about people and the messy reality of of living one's life and coexisting with the animal kingdom so it is going to be a group effort and glad that you're potentially part of the team so uh, thanks again mark for coming on the show it's a pleasure That Mark will be back before episode 100 because he will feature in the second part of one of our coming installments. He will talk about his recent visit to a couple of the hot spots where I'm based in Gloucestershire and will discuss the difficulty and challenges of tracking and trailing for signs of the cats in Britain. Mark will also fill us in on the time when he was attacked by a crocodile in South Africa and the experience he had of feeling like prey at that instant when a predator was upon him. So, all of that and more coming up in a few episodes' time. And on the website for this edition, on the references and links section, we have a photo of a scat from Dorset, and that nicely fits the wattle and door description that Mark mentioned. And not only that, it's one that did get a positive DNA result for pardus, so leopard, and that resulted from a black hair, a presumed grooming hair of the host animal. That's what got the positive DNA result. So thanks to the experienced investigator Jonathan McGowan for letting us see that one, and of course well done to Jonathan for getting that result. Also on the website we have put at last a picture of my little black cat because we often talk about him, so you can see Zaki on the podcast website. In terms of the recent sightings reported to me, I've had a black panther, or possibly a black leopard, reported from Oxfordshire. The witnesses are now in discussion with Steve Archibald and he was our guest from episode 93 because he's based in Oxfordshire and he can advise them and help with any follow-up. But the key factor in that report was the two red kites which seemed to be patrolling overhead above the cat and the cat seemed to be interested in a small prey item, perhaps something like a rabbit, which was out of view from the witnesses. So that's the first time that we've had a report of red kites, which of course are scavenging birds, possibly loitering with intent by a big cat, to see if there was a chance of scavenging something. And we'll have to see if we get any future data on that topic, because those kinds of reinforcing signs in nature is something we might expect. And here in Gloucestershire, where I am, we don't get many red kites, but I watched one last month as it swooped low for about 30 seconds, and that was immediately above where my little domestic cat, Zaki, was feeding on a rat in the next-door field edge outside a barn at the time. Zaki doesn't usually leave anything spare when he's devouring a rodent, so the kite would have been disappointed, I'm afraid. Okay, in terms of our next episode, we'll be speaking with a retired gamekeeper... There are plenty of interesting snippets in that one and we do cover the issue of shooting a big cat because it's something he did on two occasions and both events were because of sheep killing behavior that was a concern to a farmer our guest admits that he regrets that all now and as awkward as it is to talk about perhaps it is informative to hear about that side of the subject so that's coming up for episode 96. Finally, many thanks for some more helpful reviews we've had recently. You can see those on the Apple Podcasts review system, and your feedback is much appreciated. Righto, we're closing out now, so thanks again to Mark, our guest, and thanks everyone for listening in. Look forward to being with you again soon. Take care, and bye for now.